Good afternoon, church. Good to see everybody again, always. Let us pray, and then we'll dig into the word. Father, we thank you so much uh, for the opportunity to come together collectively, Lord, to open up your word, to pray, to sing songs, God, to encourage one another, to beat each other up uh, spiritually, God, for the good works. And uh, Lord, we ask that by your spirit, open up our hearts and our minds and our ears to hear your word and receive your word, that we wouldn't just be merely hearers, God, but become doers of your word. We pray that the gospel will go forth, that your word will go forth, and follow on fertile soil, uh, that the distractions of the world would not pluck it out, choke it out, or scorch it out, but it would produce a harvest rightful for your kingdom. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. We're going to be in Mark chapter 1 this morning, uh, 1 through 8. I think our brother uh, said uh, that's the series I was going to start, right? Yeah. Praise God. Tell Josh he doesn't have to preach this next week. <laughs> I mean, in case I do a bad job, then he can correct that. Yes, indeed. Um, Mark chapter 1, 1 through 8. Now it reads, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the, the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness, and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all of Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who was mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. Verse 8, I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Amen. I want to tag this text, the life of a forerunner. The life of a forerunner. <clears throat> There's a story of a former NFL player drafted in the 90s as a running back. A very good running back in college. Well known, but when he got drafted, they switched his position to a fullback. Now, if you know the difference between a running back and a fullback or a halfback and a fullback, the running back gets the ball, he does all the carries. He runs all the time. The fullback, which they don't use hardly anymore at all these days, but back in the day, they used a fullback to block for the running back. The whole point of that was to make the way for the running back. The running back just goes behind this guy as he's clearing out the pad. Now, when this young man got drafted, when they changed his position uh, to fullback, he didn't like that at all. He wanted the ball in his hands. He didn't understand what the priority of his role was. He wasn't about trying to lead the way in that aspect. He thought that he was leading the way by being the ball handler. So he has a pretty rough career, probably lasts only five years in the league. But I did an interview with him. He said uh, years later, retrospectively, he said, as I look back over it, I wish I would have taken on that role. I wish I would have embraced the role of a fullback. If I understood that the point was for me to lead the way so that he could score. But I didn't embrace that. 
And so that's what we see today in this text. We see a man by the name of John the Baptist embracing this role as a forerunner or to the illustration, a fullback, one who was making the way for it, clearing out the space for the soon coming king, Jesus Christ, to score. That's what we see. But before we get that, let me tell you a little bit about this author, the writer of this text, Mark. And I start off with this by asking, because in Proverbs 17, chapter, 7, chapter 17, verse 17, it talks about that a friend loves at all times, that a brother is born for times of adversity, right? So a good friend, a true friend, according to scripture, uh, isn't one who bails on you uh, when times get tough, but one who with wisdom, and I'm going somewhere with this, with wisdom, uh, with, 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 uh, with loyalty, loves you through it all and is willing to walk alongside you as you endure rough seasons that come with this life. That's a good friend. And I'm certain there is uh, some of us in here uh, who may have experienced a broken friendship or a relationship, tarnished communication with a close associate. In the beginning you had trust, in the beginning you had peace, uh, there was this genuineness, you considered each other a brother and sister for whom you could call on on times uh, in adversity. But along the way, something happened to you and this friend of yours. Uh, something happened in that relationship that became a source of division. It seemed irreconcilable. It could have been lies. It could have been gossip. It could have been an argument, selfishness, jealousy. Or maybe uh, they were just unreliable. You couldn't depend on them. Whatever the case, the two of you couldn't see eye to eye, and so you parted ways. And you haven't dealt with that person ever since. Has that happened to anybody in here, by the way? Yes. All right, all right. <laughs> cool. <laughs> just me. So you have to agree to disagree, and you just let the Lord deal with it. So, yeah, I've been there. Um, I've been the one who has gotten fed up and walked away from people. But I've also been the one who has caused others to walk away from me. See, what's interesting is that uh, the writer of this book, the Gospel of Mark, had a similar experience. See, on his first missionary journey in Acts chapter 13, verse 13, while traveling to Pamphylia, John Mark, the writer, left Barnabas and Paul and returned to Jerusalem. Now, it's uncertain uh, why John Mark left them, but whatever the reason is, his desertion uh, irritated Paul so much that on his second missionary journey in Acts chapter 15, when Barnabas wanted to take John Mark, Paul strongly opposed it because he considered John Mark unreliable. He considered him unable to carry out the work of the ministry. And this caused Barnabas and Paul to separate as well. And once a person has, you know what we say, once they're showing themselves to be wishy-washy or unreliable, we discount what they have to say and we no longer consider their words to be valid. However, over time, there seemed to have been a change in this young man, John Mark. But there was also a change in Paul's view of John Mark. See, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul writes that his brother is now useful for service. And in Colossians chapter 4 and Philemon, uh, he says that he is called one of Paul's key helpers and fellow workers. So I'm sure during the moment 
of disagreement and abandonment. Paul could not have imagined that this brother, who he once considered unreliable, who he once considered weak and unfit, would become one of the greatest contributors to the kingdom of God. Never would have thought it. See, a couple of lessons that we can even learn just from this brief intro, uh, from the circumstances of Mark and Paul is this one. Be careful not to judge. Be careful not to belittle or dismiss people that we, our society, labels as being unfit and unreliable. Because the Lord in his timing has a way of surprising and humbling all of us. He'll bring us back full circle where we become beneficiaries of that brother or sister's service. And then two, those of us who may be in or were in Mark's position, don't give up on yourselves. Remain steadfast in Christ and watch over time how the Lord develops. Amen. Verse one. In the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, Mark begins his letter. He begins the letting us know in this letter, the readers know exactly what he's writing about, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. The word gospel, as we know it, means good news about the life, the death, the burial and resurrection of Jesus. That's the gospel message. But I'm not sure if this was how the spectators, the readers of that day and age, if this is how they would have interpreted uh, that letter, that phrase. Because the audience that Mark was writing to was primarily Gentile Roman Christians, not Jews. See, the Jews would have understood the word gospel in their context to mean the good news of a sovereign or supreme ruler king taking his throne. A messianic promise, as in the king coming to establish his kingdom in Israel. That's how they would have understood it. And then you have the Roman hearers, or the Gentile pagans. See, they would have understood it in a similar fashion, but without the Jewish connection. No promise of becoming Messiah, but in their framework, they would have understood it to mean the arrival of a God, small g, not the big G God. They would have envisioned their God to be like uh, an Augustus Caesar. Someone who would rule as their emperor to lead them into peace and prosperity in the land physically. So we see two sides that interpret gospel differently. Primarily based on their ethnicity, based on their culture, and based on their context. Which we know influences how all of us, to some degree or another, interpret and how we relate to everything and everybody, doesn't it? See, the, the question for us today is, how do we understand the word gospel? How do we think, uh, how do you think your neighbors would understand the word gospel? When you hear it, what comes to mind? Is it the same now as when you first heard it back then? Or has it evolved over time? For better or for worse? See, some only associate it with music, because Back in the day, when I thought about gospel, it was all about music to me. I didn't know anything about Jesus Christ. Or, as this affirmative statement, like a positive add-on, for instance, if you were to uh, say something that was deep, somebody, oh, yeah, man, that's gospel. Yeah, 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 that, that's righteous, you know, but it's all, yeah, that, that's gospel. No relation to Jesus' salvation. But say, so, yeah, that, that's gospel, that's good, that's good news, simply good. And then this one's a little bit better. Uh, when you hear gospel, maybe you think of just the four books, four gospel books, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. And then that's it. You know about that. 
But see, when it comes to the gospel, what we think about it, how we understand it, and how we apply it exposes our theology. It exposes our orthodoxy, and then it exposes our orthopraxy. What does that mean? Your understanding about God, if you believe, is that correct? And then are you living right? It exposes all three of those categories. See, the gospel undergirds all of that. So what Mark says is that this is the beginning of the good news about Jesus Christ. This name, now meaning going forward, this name, Jesus, meaning Yahweh, is salvation. He will save people from their sins. Then he says, not just that, but the Christ. Jesus, Yahweh, save people from their sins. Then Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. Not only that, but then he goes on to say the son of God. That is his lineage. That is the meaning he is one in nature with God. He is God's co-equal. He puts all of that in just that one name. Breaking it down. Giving them big theology right there. But then we go down to verse 2. 2 through 3. Because after telling us what the writing is about. Mark says he gives credibility to his claim about the coming Christ by showing us that what he was talking about was actually spoken of long before him. He does that by quoting from the book of Isaiah, chapter 40, verse 3. Excuse me. Then he also quotes from Malachi, chapter 3. However, Mark doesn't quote a prophecy about Christ. I want y'all to notice that. He doesn't quote anything about the coming Messiah. See, instead... He quotes a prophecy about the forerunner for Christ, John the Baptist. See, John was the cousin of Jesus. Y'all know this, the one that Luke described as being filled with the Holy Spirit and leaping for joy inside of his uh, mother's womb when Elizabeth heard about Mary being pregnant. That's, that's, the, that's the one we're talking about. So why would Mark speak of someone other than Jesus if Jesus is the primary one in this text? What's the purpose of a prophecy about John the Baptist? Well, maybe the answer may be that Mark was aware of the audience that he was writing to. Those who would hear or read about his writing. See, keep in mind that uh, he's writing to believers and also unbelievers, Jews and Gentiles. And the history and the culture that they would have been familiar with would have been that of kings being announced of their arrival by a messenger. See, they would have been familiar with a messenger coming days prior to the king's arrival and saying and heralding, hey, the king is coming. See, back in the day, those days, first century, rather, kings did not announce themselves on arrival. They always sent a messenger ahead days prior to the king arriving, alerting the people so that they could prepare themselves for the king's arrival. That's what we ought to be doing. That's what they talk about. Get your house in order. So you always keep in mind that he's quoting from Isaiah and Malachi. So this is why. So if there was a skeptic reader of this letter saying that they were unaware of this coming king and that no one ever spoke of him, Marcus simply point them right back to the Old Testament passages and say, oh, no, there was one crying in the wilderness his name was John the Baptist. He, he told you all about him. And Isaiah the prophet spoke of him. So you have no excuse. That's the point. He says, but just in case you don't know about John, just in case, 
Let's observe just a little bit about him. See, in verse 4, we see that the Old Testament prophecy being, is, is, excuse me, is being fulfilled. You have John the Baptist appearing in the wilderness. But let me get this straight just real quick before we go further. I want y'all to know that Baptist was not, was not John's last name, just in case y'all would have thought that. Baptist is not John's last name. All right. Uh, it was a descriptive term to distinguish him from other folks. See, in the original translation, he's called John the Baptizer. See, John was a very common name in that century, just like, I mean, I guess it still is now. And they would have needed to uh, add on attributes, characteristics, or even a relative's uh, name to that person's name to separate them from others. So since baptism is what John did, that's what the community associated most with him. Naturally, that's what stuck. Now, the world in which we live in doesn't function necessarily like that anymore as it relates to a person's last name, or does it? I mean, I know we have birth certificates, we have IDs and licenses and all that good stuff. Um, but do those names really mean anything? Do our names mean anything at all? Like, does a name help to identify a person? Does it describe them? Does your name describe what you do and who you are? Hmm. If you were trying to help a friend, remember someone, trying to help a friend remember somebody, and you try to describe them, you would say, hey, yeah, you know, the person that wears these type of shoes or the person that drives this type of car, or they work here, or they, their hair is always one like this, or they're light skin, dark skin, whatever, pale skin, whatever. You give all these different descriptions. But here comes the hard part. <clears throat> and this may be easy for some. But if you had to remove your last name and let society replace it with a verb, an adjective of some sort, some sort of characteristic, what would they call us? Like, what would they call you? We can pause on that for a moment. My God, what would they call me? My goodness. Yeah, I used to do this back in the day. Do they still know me as that back in the day? But that doesn't really matter now for those of us who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. What the world used to know us formerly as doesn't matter because God knows us now as this new creature found in Christ. When he sees us, he doesn't see our wretchedness, but he sees the blood of Christ that we're wrapped in. Amen. We praise God for that. But think about that too, yet and still because he says we've now put on this new man and so now we have new actions. But do your actions show the world and society that you are now associated with Christ? Galatians 2.20 talks about the life that I formerly lived. I don't live anymore. But it's a new life that we live because we, <laughs> we, we're found in Christ Jesus. And so can society, yes, yeah, says, yes, this man, John, yeah, he prays. John, he serves. John, he's in the church. John, he preaches. John, he's a loving guy. John is kind. John is gracious. Our Susan, whoever. Think about that. Does our association, does our redemption, does our salvation cause us to live another life? That now this world can begin to associate us with because it says that they should know you by your fruits. See, baptism is what characterized John. He didn't receive his name, title, or recognition because he gave it to himself. 
because of who his family was or who he hung out with. No, it wasn't anything by proxy. It was based on the consistency of what John did. So you may be thinking, but didn't everybody baptize, other folks baptize? Why was John the only one talked about? Well, no. Everyone didn't baptize and Jews didn't baptize. See, there were no baptistries, there were no churches, there were no first Lord's Day of the month baptisms. The only sort of baptisms Jews would have done was called, uh, was, was more symbolic. Uh, they would have baptized a Gentile into Judaism. It's called proselyte baptism. See, when a Gentile wanted to become a true worshiper of the true God is when that would occur. That's the only time they would have done that. So why was John given that identifying marker? Because, again, he consistently practiced something that was unusual and uncommon during that time. And I'd say that even what we're doing right now is not common. It's still uncommon in this day and time, and it's going to become more and more uncommon. True worshipers of Christ. As the day draws near, right, he's going to separate the wheat from the shape. The goats are going to be separated from the sheep. I'm telling y'all the truth. Y'all know this. And this is going to be very, very uncommon for the true worshipers to stand out from the world. So what we see now is first, I guess, point would be John's action. We see it in verse 4, John's action. What was John doing? We see in verse 4 that John preached and in verse 5 he baptized. The uncommon. Preach Baptize, preach, baptize, preach, baptize. There seems to be a correlation here. If we preach, they will come. Yep, Romans 10, 13, 14. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how then can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? What do you mean they will come? Well, the text says in verse five, following his preaching in verse four, and all were coming to him and being baptized. Now, that's not a promise that every single person uh, that we share the gospel with will immediately repent, turn from their sin and follow Christ. No, but Paul says in first Corinthians chapter three uh, that he planted Apollo's water and God gave the growth. So it's. God who gives, excuse me, God who is able to turn the heart from stone to flesh, but he's given us the responsibility and the opportunity to join in his work. Amen. See, Jesus commanded and commissioned us to go everywhere and make disciples. And in verse 20 of Mark, excuse me, Matthew, uh, Matthew, Matthew chapter 28, he promised to be with us even to the end of the age. So that says to me that he is going to bring people to himself through us being faithful to proclaiming him. But preacher, our pastors preach faithfully every single Sunday. Well, according to Ephesians chapter 4, he says he gave some as pastors for equipping the saints for the work of the ministry to the building up of the body of Christ. What does that mean? Everybody has a responsibility to preach the word of God. Everybody has a responsibility to go out here and proclaim the good news. We are all in this fight. We're all in this walk. We're all in this life together. And we can do more together than we can apart. We're all in this thing. And so we see what John was doing. 
preaching and baptizing. Preaching, baptizing. Simple as that. But then now what was John, what was John preaching? What was John's message? What did he preach? John preached a, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Remember, the job of a, for, a forerunner is to prepare the way, to lay the ground, or to build a bridge for the one who was to follow and to prepare the people for his arrival. That was our job as well. And so what's the best way for the people to prepare for this king that John is proclaiming? By heeding to the message of John. That's simple as that. Submitting to the message of John. Listening to the message of John. Following the message of the forerunner. Which was to repent of their sins and to be baptized. See, they needed to be forgiven. Now, being baptized didn't cleanse them, nor does it cleanse us of anything. But it does declare our intent. See, it is this outward sign to the world, <clears throat> a public demonstration that your sins have been wiped clean and forgiven, that we're committing ourselves to following God. See, the message of John was so impactful that we see now in verse 5 that all of the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going to him and being baptized in the Jordan. All. That's how impactful it was. That's how impactful God was through his faithfulness. What was he preaching that was so potent that multitudes were coming? The gospel of Luke tells us that all John preached was judgment. The brother called people a brood of vipers and said that the wrath was coming. See, he'd be the equivalent to a fire and brimstone preacher. See, John didn't tickle the ears. He didn't come up with these catchy cliches, wasn't worried about making the crowd shout and telling them that the harvest was coming. Nah, buddy. He made it plain to me and he made it clear. See, he said that God is coming to judge the world soon with fire and he's coming with the winnowing fork, separating the wheat from the shape. John highly suggested that they repent and be saved. That was it. He says, get your house in order. See, John knew John knew that the word of God would not go out and return back void, but he knew that it was going to accomplish what it was set out to do. And again, plant, water, the Lord gives an increase. That was John's formula of ministry. Simple as that. That's simple, ain't it? You know, we want to create all this other stuff and draw and attractional models. I'm not saying y'all do. I don't think y'all do that. But I'm saying, in general, we see a lot of folks doing that stuff. And we just forget, like, how simplified he has already made this formula. And it's effective, it's effectual, it's going, to get, it's going to continue on until Jesus comes back. But the thing is, is we act in a way as if we don't trust him. And John's model is no trust him. His promises are sure, it's going to follow through. And so that was John's formula. We see what John was doing. We see the message that John was proclaiming, the content of it. But also I want you all to look at John's location. So we see what John was doing, we see the content of his message, but look at John's locale, verses 4 through 5. Keep in mind what I said a little bit earlier about <clears throat> how the Jews uh, not practicing baptism uh, because we see now, what we see now is that Jews are now being baptized. They did not practice baptism, but we see them now being baptized. See, the Jews, the ones who considered themselves the spiritual elite and God's chosen people, we're now saying through their baptism that they are now no better than a Gentile. That's humility. 
They were no more ready to make into God's kingdom than a Gentile was. That's what baptism was showing. I mean, talk about uh, sitting one's pride aside and humbling yourself, especially these Jews, right? It was a big thing to them. So you're now able to identify with the people who you weren't inclined toward nor sympathize with. But because of the gospel, are they now able to recognize that they're all equal at the foot of the cross? Male nor female, slave nor free, Jew nor Gentile, they begin to all come together. See, but notice what was taking place. Like I said, the location. It was taking place in the wilderness. In the wilderness. You ever stop to wonder why these folks were leaving their homes to travel to the wilderness? One commentator said it this way. I thought it was pretty, pretty good. He says, to be baptized in the Jordan meant that Israel must once again leave and come to the wilderness for salvation. The people are called to a second exodus in preparation for a new covenant with God. To go back to the wilderness signifies Israel's acknowledgement of their rebellion and their desire to start over. That's what it signifies. I said, praise God and amen to that. I thought it was deep, even if y'all don't think it was, but yes. I, we, we see that, that illusion right there. But not only John's location, but look at the modesty of John. The modesty in verse 6. It says, now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. Look at how John the baptizer carried himself. <clears throat> what he wore and what he ate. It seemed a bit unusual in comparison to others around him. Because verse 6 tells us that John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist. And his diet was locusts and, and honey. John was looking crazy. Bottom line. John was looking quite unusual, wasn't he? I mean, imagine if your pastor, Rolak, was out here in a white robe, bathrobe, tied around his waist, uh, had on some flip-flops, and a mason jar full of honey, and some locusts on a stick on the corner. Y'all would probably look at this cat and say, something wrong with Josh. You okay, brother? I'm going to stand across the street, man, just to make sure you're good, man, because I ain't going to come near you because you might be on something. I don't know. Right? He looked he look weird. He looking strange. However, but that's how we would react to this appearance because of the context and the culture that we live in. They would have seen this uh, somewhat odd, but they weren't, but they were accustomed to it. See? So his style would have reminded them of the prophets of old. Like Elijah. In 2 Kings chapter 1, 18, verse 18, tells that the prophet Elijah dressed in a hairy garment with a leather girdle around his waist. And in Zechariah chapter 13, talks about false prophets who desire to deceive by putting on hairy robes and garments. Therefore, this is why Jesus says, beware of false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly, inwardly they are ravenous wolves. See, they wanted to dress like prophets. That's why he says that. 
They come to you in wool and of hairy garment. See, this was not unusual to them. They already knew what it stood for. So why did John wear this? He wore it simply because his outfit was associated with a true prophet. And the people knew that and respected him as such. See, his diet of locusts and wild honey, which was also in step with the Nazarite diet, and the prophet Elijah was a Nazarite as well. And if you remember in Luke chapter uh, 1, verse 17, the angel says of John that he will also go before him in the spirit of Elijah. So John was not concerned about the fashion of the day. He was not worried about fitting in with the crowd. He did not care about what people thought about him. John was a prophet, and he wanted to be taken seriously as one who God had designated for the task. And beloved, we're all called to be like the prophets of old. Not just like them, identical to them. But not, not, not that you should dress and eat like that, but in setting a line of, the, of demarcation is how we ought to be. Right? Through the proclamation of the word, through humble and modest living, devoid of greed, arrogance, and pride. We're not called to be puppets dancing to the beast of society's drum. No, we're, we're called to live contrary to the culture that devalues God. We're called to be like the prophets. And then lastly, we see John's selflessness, his selflessness, selflessness in verses 7 through 8. <clears throat> so after John preaches his message, he now turns to a different subject. It says if John was like, and I quote, now I preach a lot of messages and I've had many come to repentance through my ministry. But there's this, this one guy who's coming and uh, he's a bad boy. I'm not even unworthy to untie this man's sandals. Now what I used on you was water when I baptized, but this man here, he's coming to baptize you with something even greater. Friends, this is the sum of John's life and ministry. This is the point of the forerunner. He points the people to Christ and not himself. That's the whole point. Points people to Christ and not himself. John could have been jealous and said, Jesus, he's all right. I mean, but he's not better than me. Being baptized in the spirit isn't that much of an upgrade from water. John could have said that. But no, John doesn't do that. Rather, in John chapter 3, verse 30, it says what? I must decrease he must increase. Again, John's not worried about being identified as the man or the best preacher in town. No, he ain't trying to be like this guy in the city, didn't care about having the most members. His concern is to proclaim what thus saith the Lord, maintain the dignity of the office, prepare the people, and hand the baton over and get out the way. That's it. And we got too many guys standing in the pulpit too long, too many years, and not training up the other, the next generation to take over the mantle. We got a lot of kids lying on the side, a lot of teenagers lying on the side, a lot of young adults lying on the side because of our lack and our inability sometimes to train them up, to really uh, invest in them. And again, John was so humble, so humble that he considered himself unfit to untie Jesus' sins. Now, this was the lowest job anybody could have. The lowest job that any servant or slave at the time could have had was untying the shoes of their master. John said he's so wretched that he doesn't even deserve to do that. 
Reading that text convicted me a little <clears throat> because it forced me to question myself. I had to ask myself, am I, am, I, am I worthy of Christ? The answer is no. Am I worthy of all that he has done for me? The answer is no. But even realizing that intellectually, that I'm not worthy, do my actions say otherwise? Do I come off entitled? Do I come off selfish? Do I go day to day giving no thought to God, to Christ, to the gospel, to discipleship, to loving well, to being gracious, to being merciful, showing mercy? Do I do any of that, fruit of the spirit? Or am I? Striving to walk in a posture of humility and contentment, grace and thanksgiving. Why is this posture of selflessness so important as it relates to John and even as it relates to us? Because in verse 8, John says that all he can do is stick you in the water. But the one who was coming after me, he says can and will transform your life. See, this speaks of the soul-transforming work of the Holy Spirit that only he can do, not us. <laughs> See, Romans 6. Let me just read these verses. Romans 6, chapter 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized in Jesus Christ were baptized into death? And we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in uh, newness of life. And then in Galatians 2, 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And then uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 9 through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteousness, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexual immoral, nor the idolaters, nor the adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor the revilers, nor the swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, us. But you were washed and you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of God. Amen. Ask yourselves this afternoon, what kind of forerunners are we? And what and who are we representing? Are you living and talking in such a way that your peers and that your family and friends see a clear path to Christ, see a clear path to God? Are we living in such a way that they see a clear path to receive the grace and mercy that God extends? Or is it the opposite? Because in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, it says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. So we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Mm. We are proclaimers, we are ambassadors, we are forerunners. And why? I believe the answer is in verse 5. In hopes that those who are far from God would come away from their idol 
asking, what must they do to be saved? That they will confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that God raised them from the dead. Because, beloved, pointing to a, a, a beautiful family is good. To accumulate degrees is fine. Pointing to build and steward finances is great. Promoting good health is great. All of that is good in moderation. And when it, <clears throat> excuse me, and when it doesn't become your idol. <clears throat> but I guarantee that when we, you, me, point to Christ, we have then pointed them to what is best. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. Great reminder and mark, God, of what a forerunner is, of what a forerunner's job is supposed to be, the aim of that mission, and what the outcome of that mission should and will be. Salvation in you. God, our job is to simply proclaim the good news, simply to carve out the way, God, for you to make a clear path so that they can see Christ and not us and let you do the rest of the work. Lord, we trust you. We love you. And we know that what you sent out, God, will not return back void. You've already promised it. But you've given us the responsibility, God, to hold up the bloodstained banner. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.